Welcome to episode 117 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Annie Brock. I really enjoyed getting to talk to Annie about her career because it is quite the roller coaster adventure. And she had her degree but was unable to find a job. And as she was walking to interviews, she passed the recruiting station for the Army. And since she had grown up as a military brat, she knew all about the military and decided to join. Four days after she walked into the recruiter's office, she was headed off to boot camp and began her military career. Because she had a degree, she was an E3 and the highest ranking enlisted member, and this gave her additional responsibilities during her boot camp. She was also one of the first 100 women integrated into the 82nd Airborne. She said the leadership was determined to make integrating women a success, and she enjoyed her time there. There's a lot more to her military career, so let's get started and dive right in. You're listening to Season 3 of the Women of the Military Podcast. Here you will find the real stories of female service members. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, military spouse, and mom. I created Women of the Military Podcast in 2019 as a place to share the stories of female service members past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Welcome to the show, Annie. I'm excited to have you here. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be your guest, Amanda. Thank you. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? That's an unusual reason I didn't join. Maybe it isn't an unusual reason. I didn't join because of any real patriotic feelings. I joined because I had a college degree and was wanting to get a job in the Washington, D.C. area. Couldn't find one. Didn't type well enough to get a job, even as a secretary. Was living with some friends of my parents, and it was really uncomfortable for me. And I needed a roof over my head and food on the table. So... Grew up as a military kid, was walking by the Army recruiting office every day as I walked to the Metro to go pound the streets of Washington, D.C., because that was back in the days when you had to actually show up someplace to apply for a job and walked by an Army recruiting office every day. The guys inside looked familiar. And so, you know, because I had grown up as a military kid, went in and talked to him one day. And that was also back in the days. It was in 1979. I'll make it clear. And you could enlist much quicker. So from the time that I first went in to just talk to them and find out if it was an option to the time that I left for basic training, it was three days. Whoa. (laughs) That's so fast. Yeah. I went in, talked to him. I went back the second day and took the test. And they said I could virtually have anything, any job in the army that I wanted. Uh, You know, I had a good educational background, so I did well on the test. And I asked them if they if there was something with computers, because I had at one point in my college career learned how to do computer programming. And I knew they were in big air conditioned buildings. (laughs) So I thought I was going to do something smart. And um, and they said yes. And I didn't listen carefully enough. And I thought I was going to be a telecommunications center operator. I signed up to be a combat telecommunications center operator, which meant that I was going to be in the back of a truck. And so the, the third day was the physical. And then the I passed it. And the fourth day I went. Well, I guess you found a job like you were looking for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah. And so that's one of the things I always tell people in, in 
life. And it's, I, I'm teaching a book right now called Think and Grow Rich, with who was written by Napoleon Hill. And one of the things that he talks about is having a definiteness of plan, having a really detailed plan. I had a plan, but it was not as detailed as it should have been. Yeah. And you said you already had your degree, but you ended up enlisting instead of going the officer route. Was that because you didn't really know about the officer route or you were just in need of a job and the door opened? Like you said, you didn't have a plan. You had an idea, but not really a plan. Yeah. Well, the pre-story is that I skipped first grade because I went to German kindergarten as a military kid. Did high school in three years because I ended up in a small New Hampshire town with not a lot of options in high school and I was bored. So I did high school in three years, got accepted into an Ivy League school, spent two years there. But because I hadn't had to work in high school, I didn't know how to study. And so I experimented with most everything that Dartmouth College had to offer, but not a whole lot in the way of academics. (laughs) I've been down the stairs of a fraternity house in a grocery cart, I will say that. And uh, and at the end of my sophomore year, they sent me a letter saying that uh, I couldn't come back because my GPA was only at 1.42. And what happened then was that my self-esteem took like a huge, huge hit. My father, when he retired from the military, had become a college professor. And so that letter didn't go over well in our house that I had been kicked out of college because he hadn't wanted me to go to an Ivy League school in the first place. So I had, I really, I really screwed up. I felt about two feet tall. And so my self-esteem, I had no self-esteem really. And the thought that I could be an officer in the military, which is what my father was, it just that was beyond me. They had offered it to me at the recruiting office, but I was—I just didn't think that I could make it through OCS. So I, I went in and enlisted. What an interesting backstory about like your self-esteem and how that had such a, I mean, it makes sense because you felt like you had failed and that's a really hard thing, especially like you are on the top of your game and you went to this Ivy League school and then the distractions of life kind of led you astray. I mean, and truthfully, it haunted me for the, for about 50 years for I, until I was, I don't think I was, re, I really came to grips with that. Look, you were only, you know, 16, 17 when this happened, but I, until I was um, over 50, it haunted me. No matter what I did, no matter what I achieved, that was always in the background. You failed. Wow. I feel like I should wait till later, but I have to ask the question of how were you able to get past that? Because when I left the military and became stay-at-home mom, I felt like failure was like a huge part of my life. And it was only through going through uh, Celebrate Recovery and finding freedom that I was able to I don't, not forgive myself, but not judge myself so hardly and to give myself grace. And so what was it that after all that time of seeing failure, were you able to break free from that? Well, you know, I can relate to where you were. When I when I left the military, I, there was no transition program in 1988. I went from being a medevac helicopter pilot to being a stay-at-home Air Force spouse. And my husband was a type A personality, you know, and I So he was working back to working 16 hours a day and I was at home and I crashed. I didn't, luckily for me, I didn't fall into an addictive behavior, but I was really, really depressed. And, uh, and so I can relate to the struggles that you felt when you became a stay at home mom and how I got out of it was just spending, investing myself in personal growth opportunities and just really just digging into that and making that the focus of what I did. Yeah. So sounds sounds similar, like investing in yourself and mm-hmm. learning about yourself and who you are and how much freedom that brings. Yeah. 
Okay, so let's go back to your military story. Sure. Uh, after our little detour. And so you thought that you were going to be in an air-conditioned building, but you they added that word combat in front of it, <laughs> so you were in the back of a truck. So what was boot camp like, especially having like such low self-esteem? Did you just fly under the radar? And Flying under the radar was unfortunately impossible. So I went to basic training at Fort Gordon. And it was one station unit training. So I was there for basic training in AIT. It was back in the days when you lived in the um, the big Quonset huts, the rounded, the half rounded building. Because I had a college degree, I came in as an E3. And that's why I couldn't fly under the radar because I ended up being the highest ranking female in my basic training platoon. So I was the platoon leader, you know, and I was not physically in great shape. When I started basic training, I was in a size 14 uniform. And when I graduated, I was um, going from a size 10 to a size eight <laughs> because I had lost so much weight. But because of that, I'm just trying to keep up with everything in, in basic training. I got hurt a lot. I suffered a lot from shin splints, but I never gave up. And so I stuck out too, because I insisted on going on road marches and all that kind of stuff on my crutches. I was, I might've been at the back because I couldn't sit the pace, but I was always there and I was always doing my damnedest to keep up. And so that was what I did. Yeah. It was, it was an experience that year, that winter, it, um, that January, it snowed at Fort Gordon, Georgia. And I can remember um, we were having a training session in our barracks about M16s that some of the women were just being obnoxious. And I can remember our drill sergeant decided that the solution to it was that we should low crawl around the barracks with our weapons in our arms, just in our uniforms, no, um, no field jacket or anything. So got to do that in the snow. The barracks door, it, it the bottom of the door was about an inch and a half, two inches higher than the floor. So at night, all the cold air would, <laughs> would blow in. It was just the, the old World War II um, style um, barracks. It was it was an experience. I didn't know that women would beat each other up. I had never been exposed to that. There was one woman in my platoon. Somehow, every time she went to take a shower in the evening, somebody would steal her underwear. So I, <laughs> just my memories of, of basic training are really crazy. Yeah, it sounds a little crazy. Such an experience. And so you said that the AIT, which is the training that you go to after mm -hmm. basic for your job, was in the same place. And so it, right. it just rolled right into... Yeah, we stayed... We even stayed in the same barracks. Yeah, they just, you know, nothing much changed. We had a little, except we had a little more freedom. And so we rolled right from basic training into um, our tech training. And I learned how to be a tele telecommunications center operator. It was the day in the days of punch cards and connecting wires into consoles and learned to do some of that in a classroom, but then um, ultimately learned how to do it in a truck. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and happily, I was good at it. I it, it was something that that resonated with me, and so um, I. Aside from the physical things of basic training, the rest of it wasn't hard. I mean, my dad had been really rough on us. I, I it was a not always a good situation for me at home, as far as as he, he just was wanted things his way, and and so I knew how to make a, my bed well. Even, you know, that was a piece of cake. Everybody else was struggling to make their bed to the quality at the drill sergeant. I knew how to do that because my father had said that I couldn't, the rule in the house was you didn't go catch the bus until your best bed was made. So I learned how to do that. Not that I'm a good bed maker now, but, you know, <laughs> I make an effort. And and so the only thing I really struggled with in basic training and, um, and tech school was the physical stuff, but I got through. Yeah, and... 
unlike in today's military where a lot of times you have to wait a few months or even a year before you go active duty, you were like three days later. So you had no time to like prepare for the fitness aspect. It was like you just went in and I mean, you lost so much weight in that. Yeah. And yeah, that's crazy. So I I, I call myself the original Private Benjamin. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, but in in the movie Goldie Hawn, who plays uh, Private Benjamin, there's one scene where the drill sergeant is pulling her up and down by the back of her pants to do pushups, and that really happened to me. You know, they I put my clothes into suitcases thinking I'm going to get my clothes when I get there and know the suitcases were put away in a storage room and I just had my uniforms. Uh, it was it was a real shock to my system. And, and the reason I think ultimately, besides the fact that I was so physically active, the ultimate reason why I lost so much weight was because that was where I first learned about leadership. And as the platoon leader, I held the door open to the mess hall for everybody in my platoon uh, for meals, three meals a day. And then by the time I got my tray of food, there was only time for me to go stand at the end of the line to turn my tray in. Every day there wasn't, for those meals, there wasn't time for me to sit down and eat. So I only ate as much food at every meal as I could eat from the time I got into the turn in tray turn in line to the time that I got up to it and had to put my tray down. Wow, that's crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> Not a diet plan that I'd recommend, but yeah. it, it was sufficient. <laughs> yeah. And that was because you were the highest ranking that you had to hold the door open. And yeah. Yeah. Leaders eat last. My platoon, my platoon sergeant, my drill sergeant, he taught me well. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of crazy to think, like, because you had a degree, you went in as a leader for your enlisted troop and, like, how much of that had an impact on your whole experience and how you went through boot camp. So let's talk about your first assignment. Where did you go after basic and AIT? So I went to jump school between um, AIT and uh, my first assignment because when I had signed my contract, I had that drill the recruiter had asked me where I wanted to go, and the last place my father had been assigned was at Fort Bragg, and so I remembered that he had been an instructor at the Special Warfare School, and he would they would go out on the weekends and do fun jumps to maintain their proficiency. And I mentioned that and uh, jump school had uh, just opened to women just a little bit before then. The recruiter had told me that and I said, well, that sounds like fun. I could do that. So they signed me up in my contract to go to jump school. So I did that. And that's a whole nother story in and of itself. A jump school is a three week course and it took me nine weeks to graduate, but I did it. And then they actually offered me a job as a black hat, which is an instructor at the jump school because they were so impressed by my persistence and they wanted to bring a female on board. And I went through the interview process and got hired. But before I got to hang around for very long, I was pulled up to Fort Bragg, which was where my assignment was. And that was all because of my father. So when I joined the army, my parents were on a trip around the world. My father was on sabbatical from his job as a professor. And so they were backpacking around the world and they didn't know I joined the army until after I was in for at least six weeks. And then what turned out was that the commanding general at 18th Airborne Corps at Fort Bragg happened to be a guy who was a captain with my father years ago. My father knew where he was, wrote him a letter and said, where is my daughter? Find her. And so... <laughs> So he inquired into the system and found me and found that I was at uh, Fort Benning and insisted that I should be at Fort Bragg. So my job, uh, my time as a black hat got cut very short and I was uh, sent to Fort Bragg. 
And that was where the story takes another kind of kink because my contract had said that I was supposed to be assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division. But at that time, women were not allowed to um, deploy with the brigades and they could only take female signal officers. They couldn't take female signal enlisted soldiers. So they gave me two options. I could either stay in my MOS, which was called 72 Echo, and be assigned to the 18th Airborne Corps, or I could do on-the-job training assigned to the 82nd and I would become an admin clerk. And somehow by that time, I'd gotten smart enough that I should inquire about going to the 18th Airborne Corps. And I found out that the women who were working in my MOS there were spending most of their time in the motor pool working on the Jeeps and vehicles that they used when they went out to the field. And that was definitely not my style. So I said, okay, I'll stay in the 82nd. I'll learn to do something new. So yeah, so I got assigned to the 407th Supply and Service Battalion and became one of the first 100 women assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division. And that was awesome. That was really awesome. I The, the leadership at the 407th recognized um, that I was not just your average E3 that showed up in a unit. And I got trained to do everything in the battalion um, pack, the personnel administration center. And then when there was an opportunity, uh, when we needed a new legal clerk, they let me uh, retrain and do that. And I became the battalion legal clerk. So that was a really great almost four years. So even though you were one of the first women in the 82nd, it sounds like they were ready for you guys and they were supportive and recognized the skills that you brought or did you face any discrimination being a woman? You know, that's the irony of it. When people ask me about my military career, I will tell them that in a lot of respects, my time in the 82nd was the best part because they did not, uh, they were so bound and determined to make having women in the division a success that we had permission from the division commander that if we were out on the streets walking somewhere or running PT by ourselves, that if a cat call came out of a formation coming by, we could stop that formation and drop them for push-ups. That's how serious they were about it. And so they were they were just bound and determined to make a success. And the 407th had probably more women assigned to it than any other battalion. So that was a great place for me. The S1 was a female and she was very well respected. And so, yeah, they, they, it was the first start that the place where it, where they kind of fell down, but it really wasn't their fault was they didn't have a, a good place to house us. And so uh, because there weren't enough of us to give like the whole floor of a, a barracks to, and, uh, and they, insisted on housing people by company. If I think if they had combined all the women in the battalion in one place that they could have, you know, had like enough women for one floor, but they thought, and I think it was really smart that for co- unit cohesion to keep uh, the women with the rest of their, their units, their detachments and companies, that that was important. So there were three of us women living in an NCO room. And so that meant we had two bunks stacked and one on the floor and three wall lockers and one desk and one bathroom for the three of us. And that was, you know, that was an experience. That would be an experience. (laughs) So my roommates, uh, one of them was a kleptomaniac and she would steal stuff from me. And then uh, my other roommate was from Puerto Rico. And I I think she was probably a really great woman, but I spoke no Spanish and she spoke very little English. And so it was, you know, we, we struggled, but happily all three of us were pulled pretty much to work all the time. So we, it was rare that we were, you know, in the room to do anything other than sleep. Besides there wasn't even a chair. I mean, there was no place to sit. If you were in the room, you were in your bed. So (laughs) that would make it really hard. 
being you have like no personal space for sure and then you're either working or sleeping it's almost like a deployment but you weren't deployed because like that's the tents are really tight i was in i was deployed and lived in a tent and you had like no personal space and you really only went into your tent to go to bed because like you said there's nowhere to sit there was nothing so it just yeah. kind of reminds me of my deployment. And yeah, it was kind of like that. Yeah. So finally, when I made um, E5, I had enough money and I could go get a little apartment by myself. Yeah, that must have been nice after going <laughs> <laughs> through that. It was like, yes, freedom. Uh-huh. I think that sometimes the military does things the right way. And like they were so determined that they made sure that it was a safe environment for women and like it made such a positive impact. So that's really good to hear. And it makes me think like there's so many things the military can do, but sometimes they get a little they're like, well, we can just fix it by doing this tiny thing instead of like making it a real priority and focus. Yeah. And it, and the truth is, it really starts at the top. We had a division commander who was bound and determined that it was going to be a success. And, you know, I, I as I moved um, around the military and, and saw more of, of military units, not every commander was willing to make it a success with women. Yeah, that makes sense. So you had a great four years there, right? And then yes. you moved. Where did you go next? Well, I got a direct commission when I left the 82nd. And so I had, my my contract was going to run out. And originally I should have only been there for three years, but I had, I was like so many people when they get to the transition point, I don't know what I'm going to do. And at the very last minute I asked, can I stay in? And they said, sure. They were happy to have me hang around for another year. And then they sat me down and said, you know, you need to make a plan to do something other than be in the military, (laughs) you know, if you're going to get out. And so, uh, but if you're going to stay in, we think you should go to officer candidate school and, and, you know, get, or, or actually get a direct commission was, I should say, is what they said. Uh, so they said, I applied for a direct commission in the quartermaster corps because that's the battalion I had been in. And they felt like I had been exposed to enough logistics that I could be trained to be a, a quartermaster officer, but I got turned down. So uh, they walked my paperwork down the hall to the OCS office. And of course, that was no problem. You know, at that point, I had three a college degree, three years in the military, I got accepted for OCS right away. And so then that class date was um, several months off. And the battalion commander decided that they required all of their officers to be jumpmaster qualified. And so they weren't going to have me leave the division without being jumpmaster qualified. So they signed me up for jumpmaster school. And one day when I got home from my training at Jumpmaster School, I had a letter from the uh, Medical Service Corps in the Army. And it um, said, Dear Spec 5 Schlesinger, congratulations, you've been accepted for a direct commission to the Medical Service Corps. And I'm reading it, you know, and it said a date I was going to get commissioned. And I was like, well, this is really weird. I don't understand it. But I think I'm, you know, I think I'm going to be a second lieutenant in the Medical Service Corps. So on my way to Jumpmaster um, training the next morning, I stopped by to see the battalion commander because he was always in really early. And I showed him this, le- showed him my letter and I said, sir, I don't think I have to go to OCS anymore. I think I'm going to get you know, be commissioned in, in October. And he said, yep, you're right. He read the letter. He said, yep, you're right. So I left the 407th to go to Medical Service Corps Officer Basic Training at Fort Sam Houston. And that's really what led to my le- my next adventure. Because one day during training, they came in and asked who wanted to go to jump school. Well, it's obvious I didn't need to do that. And then they said who wanted to go to air assault school. And learning to rappel out of helicopters sounded like much more work than what I really wanted to do. And then they <laughs> they asked that infamous question. 
question. Well, who wants to go to flight school? And the private Benjamin in me um, leaped out. And I figured I could drive a car that somebody could teach me to fly an airplane or a helicopter. So I raised my hand. And out of the five of us who volunteered for my class, I was the only one who made it through the whole process, the physical, the interview and everything. So, yep, uh, my next step was uh, flight school at Fort Rucker. Wow, that sounds so cool. I love how it's like, well, you're going to do this, but then you're going to do this. And then they're like, you want to do this? It's so different than the military today where it's like, I don't know. I don't feel like I hear the stories of things just randomly changing like I do from women who served, you know, earlier. I think there was a lot more flexibility. I think I think some things have gotten a lot more rigid. Yeah. So let's talk about flight school. Well, that was fun. Actually, it turned out that after I got the hang of flying the TH-55, which was the starter helicopter back then, kind of like a um, a lawnmower with a, a rotor system attached to it um, and a tail rotor. I got I was pretty good at it. I, and and what it, I can remember the very first time though that I landed the helicopter, the TH-55. My instructor pilot looked over at me and he said, "Well, we've arrived." Could we go around the traffic pattern another time and land the next time? <laughs> and so that's I my my husband looks at me every time when we when we fly somewhere together and I I judge even even today whether we've arrived or whether we've landed as I learned. So I, I did that and it turned out that I was a pretty good navigator. We did um, learn and back then actually we used maps. They gave us these. I don't know, 25 sheets of maps. And we had to to glue them together and tape them together and fold them into a big map book. And we learned to do, to fly Nap of the Earth, which is just right above the treetops um, navigating. And so that turned out to be a really good skill for me as a, as a medevac pilot. But I got pretty good at it. And um, one of my stick buddies was pretty good at it. And so when it came time for graduation, we, we didn't... Uh, Back then, I don't know what they still do at Fort Rucker. I should check it out one day. But back then on your graduation day, uh, the whole class did a huge flyover of the main parade field on Fort Rucker. But um, John and I didn't fly over the parade field because what they did was everybody took off and massed way out in the training area and then flew in. But John and I had the honor of navigating the way in. And so we brought our class into the parade field and then took off and everybody flew across. How cool. Yeah, it was really neat. Yeah. What did you do after you graduated? I was assigned to the crash rescue unit called Flatiron at Fort Rucker for a few months. I uh, did that. They flew white Hueys there. And um, and so that was that was an interesting time. I learned that's where I got my first experience, you know, just really doing crashes, flying to uh, happily. There weren't too many of them on on the, um, on the, in the training cycles, but there were a couple. And we also at that time flew uh, MAST missions, which was military assistance to safety and traffic. And so we would fly civilian patients from accident scenes, occasionally accident scenes, but more commonly from the Dothan Hospital up to um, the hospitals in Montgomery and Birmingham. So I learned to land. That was the, the most different kind of thing that I got to do there was landing on the rooftop of the Dothan Hospital because that's where their helipad was. And we would fly. Uh, we flew the UH-1Vs and what made it a V as opposed to an H was that we had a fuel tank, an extra fuel tank, an auxiliary fuel tank on one side of the helicopter. So that um, made a weight issue. So learning to to land a full helicopter on the rooftop uh, so we could pick somebody up. Um, and, you know, I flew babies that weren't any bigger the size of my hand in um, in incubators up to up to Birmingham to the, the neonatal center. You know, really kind of amazing things. That was a really good experience. Yeah, that sounds really cool. That's like such a cool story. And I love listening to like how your career just like zigzags all over the place and 
all the cool things that you got to do. It's really cool. So yeah. So from there, I went to Germany. It was my last assignment on active duty, but it was not the happiest. I arrived there to be the first um, female pilot from any country's military service in the southwest corner of Germany. And we had four commissioned officers and 12 warrant officers in our unit. So there was a commander, an ops officer, a supply officer, and then me as the commission officers. And so I can remember being picked up in Frankfurt. And the the way they welcomed me was with a sign because they didn't know what I looked like. It was, the, you know, back in the days where you didn't, you couldn't look up on the internet or do anything like that. So I was welcomed to by two men that I had never met before with a sign that said, any female second lieutenant. Wow. And that, that kind of beat, I, I, what I didn't tell you was when I went for my interview as a black hat at Fort Rucker, I mean, at Fort Benning, that I had um, driven, I had a car by that time, and I had driven to uh, the parking lot where the instructor cadre um, was headquartered. My interview was at one o'clock. I got there right before one o'clock. The command sergeant major was just getting back from lunch. And what he said to me as we walked into the building was, well, at least you're pretty. So I went from that as an E3 to any second lieutenant female. Right. And after having such a good experience at like the 82nd and then going to flight school and and doing really cool stuff in Alabama and then to go to Germany. And you probably were really excited to go to Germany. And then like you arrived and we're like, oh, well, this is going to be fun. Yeah. You know, I mean, I had my first um, I should say I had my first indications of what would happen at my officer basic course at um, at Fort Team Houston, because in the 82nd, we didn't um, the women didn't wear skirts. We wore pants and bloused our boots like the men. And so that's what I was used to doing. And I didn't know all the ins and outs of the dress rules like I should have. And so when I went to Fort Sam Houston for OBC, that's what I did. I put my pants on with my shirt, my green uniform that I was required to wear. The senior officers, well, not the, not the most senior officers, but like the majors and lieutenant colonels, they were like, what is this woman doing with bloused boots? And so I think if a man had, um, if I had been a man, they wouldn't have said anything. But because I was a woman, they stuck out and they pointed out to me that the regulations said that if you were going to, if you were en route to a non-airborne assignment, which at that point, because I hadn't, you know, I was, I had been scheduled to go be a hospital administrator at Fort Devens. That's what my order said. So that was a leg assignment. So technically I wasn't authorized to wear, to blouse my boots anymore. And so they made me stop then. But I think if I had been a man, I wouldn't have stuck out. They would have just said she's prior service or going on to, you know, where he's going on to an assignment um, and they wouldn't have said anything, but I stuck out. And so, you know, that was my first inkling that people weren't going to be happy. And yeah, so when I got to Lonstool, it was interesting. It was I got a lot of good flying experiences. Um, some of the warrant officers were pretty much stuck in the old school. I had one warrant officer that refused to sign his OER because I wrote it, but he refused to be signed because I was a woman. And he wasn't even signing that he agreed with what I wrote. All he was signing was that his demographic information on the piece of paper was correct, but he refused to sign because I was a woman. But the enlisted soldiers were awesome. They would come and check on me and make sure and ask me, are you doing okay? you know, that kind of thing. But I mean, I went through a series of commanders there. My last one was the worst. The day I pinned on um, captain, they had a nice ceremony for me on the heliport. And then we were walking back into the building and he said to me, oh, by the way, I'm Captain Schlesinger. I'm flying the flight surgeon in um, later today to give you a psych eval because I don't think you're fit to fly. So they brought the flight surgeon in and the flight surgeon interviewed me and every other of the pilots and talked to some of the enlisted soldiers. 
And then he got all of us officers together again in one room. And he looked at me and he looked at them and he said, she's not the problem. You guys are the problem. But it didn't fix anything, as you can imagine. That sounds really hard. Yeah, that was the, that was the beginning of the end for me. From that point, you know, it, it just went downhill. And but I had one thing that saved me, and that's it set the trajectory for every everything that's happened to me has set the trajectory for the, for the next step. The general officer who uh, controlled doctors' assignments was coming to Germany for a one week meeting in Garmisch. And our operations officer had been scheduled to go rent a Mercedes, go meet him in Munich, take him down and spend the week with him. Well, something happened and I can't remember exactly what, but that fell through. And so I was given that assignment. And my commander made me promise not to say anything bad about the army. Literally. He said, you can't say anything bad. I said, okay, sir. And I was inside, I was thinking, you're really stupid because I knew that you know, this guy, he was going to ask me how long I had been in Germany. And when I told him three years, because I was bumping three years at that point, he was going to say, and where are you going next? And I was going to say, I'm getting out because that had been my plan. And that happened in the first 30 minutes. So General Rumbaugh was astounded when I told him that. And then we had a lot of time to talk that week. And he arranged for me to stay on active duty another year because I had the opportunity to apply for a regular commission. And so they arranged for me to be reassigned to for my last year to the Lonstall Army Regional Medical Center in their clinical support division as a hospital administrator for that year because they already had a guy coming in to replace me in the unit. So that's what I did. And that was uh, where I first learned about personal growth and organizational development. The major that I uh, worked for there was into that. Um, And so uh, my jobs there were that all the receptionists in the outpatient clinics in the hospital, they all were, they're all civilians. They all worked for me. The patient appointment system, that was my responsibility. And then the outpatient part of the emergency room was my responsibility. So among my, you know, the good things that I did was I revamped how the outpatient clinic worked in the ER. We made it much more efficient from the perspective of seeing patients so that people didn't have to wait as long. The doctors worked harder, but the patients got seen faster. And then, you know, we we just, you know, I took good care of the receptionist, took good care of the the patient, the people who worked in patient appointments. Uh, so I did that until um, I got out. And the interesting things that happened um, during that time was that I revamped the sign system. I literally, I, I had to make all the signs myself that I was given the task of revamping the signage in the hospital because it was a relatively new building back then. It was big and people were getting lost. So I created a sign system and made them and got them up. And then um, unfortunately, that was the during the time period of the um, big crash at the Ramstein Air Show. I don't know if you've ever heard about that, but that was one of the things that the 63rd Med Detachment, which was the medevac unit there, did every year was to um, provide crash rescue support for the Ramstein Air Show, which was one of the biggest air shows in Germany every year. And I typically um, was one of the pilots who did that um, after I'd been there for a year, just because I didn't have family to bring to the air show. And so I did that. But then the year that my husband and I got married, I was already on the staff at Lonstuhl and the crash happened. It was the Frecky Tricolori, um, their um, demo pilot made a small mistake and um, hit one of their other pilots um, right over 
the crash happened right above the medevac helicopter. And Kim Strader, actually the officer who had replaced me at the 63rd, he had been underneath the helicopter in the shade because it was really, really hot out there. And he had his flight suit down to his waist, but he had come out to watch the Freckie Tricolori fly. And that burning jet fuel came down on top of him and burned him. And um, he died of his, of his burns. But my husband and I were across the airfield and he was an aircraft maintenance officer there at Ramstein. And I had left him right before the, 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 the Italians flew to go get us a pretzel. So I was off in the crowd when the crash happened, but towards the area where when the one airplane and the jet fuel fell straight down and then the other airplane actually landed parts of it in the crowd. So that's where my husband thought I was. He thought I was like in the thing there. So he comes running to find me. We found us. And I realized that, you know, there wasn't anything really that we could do that was efficient there. But I knew that with all the injuries being pushed up the hill to the hospital, because we were the closest hospital, uh, that was on a Sunday, the doctors weren't going to be able to see patients. Well, actually, I guess maybe first or second day of the year show. But at any rate, the doctors were not going to be ready to see patients in the hospital on Monday. So I told my husband, we had ridden our bikes from the small town that we lived in. We rode our bikes home, jumped in the car and flew up to the hospital and ran into the patient appointment area. And I started pulling out, running off the sheets of all the appointments that we had in the hospital on Monday and Tuesday and gave my husband a script and said, "This you need to call people and tell them that their appointment is being delayed and we will call them back later in the week and tell them when their appointment is going to be. But I just knew we could not have, you know, hundreds of people descending on the hospital for doctor's appointments with doctors that were going to be busy. Wow. What a way to end the military career. Yeah. And that was like two months before I left active duty. Wow. That's really... Wow. Just, um, I, you know, my military career was just like a roller coaster ride. I never deployed, but I, you know, it was a roller coaster ride. Yeah. And then you made the transition and you were married to a military person. So you became a military spouse and we don't have a lot of time, but what do you want to talk about from the time that you left active duty to where you are now? <laughs> so, yeah, so another, another roller coaster ride, you know, I really, I didn't know who I was. I had joined the military as a young 20 something, um, had never done anything in the world as a civilian, came out with these, um, you know, amazing experiences behind me. And all of a sudden I was an Air Force spouse and a second lieutenant maintenance officer spouse in a flying squadron, as it was. And there was back then, um, and there is still to a certain extent, a huge difference in the flying squadrons between the maintenance side of the house and flying side of the house. And I was really off put by that because I was a pilot. You know, what what made me any any less of a person? So that was a a really interesting experience. But my fellow Air Force spouses really um, dug in and they took care of me and I got involved in the community. And then I really like baskets. Somebody turned me on to Langeberger baskets, and so I sold Langeberger baskets for a couple of years. And one of then one of my friends who was a Mary Kay consultant said, "You know, people never run out of baskets, but they run out of pink bottles get empty." So I I was like, "Well, that's really smart." And so I changed and became a Mary Kay. Um, consultant and uh, became a sales director where I earned the privilege of driving a free company car. It wasn't pink, but it was red and they paid the insurance payment and the car payment. So that was a good thing. Um, And just got really active in the community. Everywhere we went, I was a lifetime Girl Scout. So I led my girls into Girl Scouting and led Girl Scout troops around the world, led the Girl Scout program in Stuttgart, Germany during the 2001-2002 school year. We had 21 Girl Scout troops on four military installations. And I used everything I learned when in my 
additional duty as the physical security officer at the Lonstool Heliport to keep our Girl Scout program going. Um, during that school year, all the other extracurricular activities shut down, but we kept going and grew. So that's really awesome. And I'm still in touch with some of the wonderful women who were uh, leaders of the Girl Scout troops back then. Uh, so that's really cool to still be connected with people. And then as my husband retired from the Air Force in 2007, I got really active then with veterans uh, because I started writing his resume and seeing what uh, people, service members go through when they transition. So I did that, got active in my community um, with veterans. And so it's just really kind of rolled into where we are now back in 2000. 18, I, uh, 2016, I came up with the idea for Changing Focus, the veteran transition program that I founded, but my self-confidence wasn't good enough. I had gotten past the point of, of letting myself be held back by my past, but I just was too afraid to launch the program. So I sat on it for two years. We launched in 2018 and, uh, and then a slow start over the first um, 18 months, but then COVID, I would have to say that we have thrived in the COVID era. Um, oddly enough, we're one of those organizations organizations, we were able to jump into the virtual arena. And prior to COVID, we had done five iterations of our programs in five different locations. But since COVID, we've served over 100 people in uh, 22 states, the District of Columbia and Germany. So it's really uh, awesome to be able to serve people in such a wide area. And then uh, we've cut our costs and increased our attendance. Uh, so we're we're on our uh, on our road. And, and again, an opportunity fell in in my way that I was able to turn into something positive. And um, and so now we um, ha instead of being primarily an in-person program, we are a virtual program. That sounds so awesome. And it's it's great that you had that resource available and ready for when COVID hit and people needed it. And you guys were able were you guys already kind of online? So it was an easy pivot to connect with people or did you have to make changes? We had been once a month, we had been doing a, um, a virtual training and coaching session, but I joined the John Maxwell team um, in as one of the founding partners back in 2011. And we had built a team uh, around the world of coaches. And, and so I was comfortable operating in the virtual environment. I had been part of a program that launched the first John Maxwell youth program in 2012. And uh, the 10 of us that put the program together, we were spread across New Zealand, South Africa, Canada, Mexico, the United States. And so I had gotten really comfortable operating in that environment. But the one key difference was that we did it using uh, freeconferencing.com. And so we didn't see each other. There was no video component to it. So I had to learn to get comfortable in the in the video environment in Zoom. And But we had done some of our meetings that way. So I had the basics of understanding Zoom. And that's, yeah, so just rock and rolled with it. I, you know, you have to, to learn by trying sometimes. That's so true. Yeah, that's so awesome. I I really have enjoyed hearing your military story and all the twists and turns and all the things that you got to do and the hardships. And But I have one last question for you, which is what advice would you give to young women who are considering joining the military? Number one, do it because the military needs you because that is the way we make change. There are still big changes that need to be made in the military and we can't do it without women. But I think the thing is to go into it with your eyes open, to stay hard and fast to your principles, to find the other women with you and to um, and to band together with them so that you have a squad and to rely on those of us who have been there to support you and, and to go for the top. 
to not to be afraid to anytime there's an opportunity um, to try. I remember when when I was um, at the 82nd, one of the um, one of the other women um, who was there with me, she really wanted to go to Recondo school, which was a lower, not quite at um, Ranger School, but an, another level. And she fought and fought and fought for that, you know, never got there. But it takes people to lay the way. And so those of us who have come before, we've laid a path, but there's so much farther to take it. So we we need women to join the military and not be afraid of it, just to, to reach and grab for every opportunity they're offered, not to be afraid of those doors, walk through them. That's great advice. It's so true. The women before have laid a path and there is so much more. And yes, we need more women to serve so that they can still keep pushing and breaking barriers because there's so much we can do. And one thing that really resonated from your story, we didn't, I didn't ask you a question about it, but you talked about how the enlisted people checked on you. And one thing that I think women are good leaders because they take care of their people and you never talked directly about it, but I could hear through your stories that you took care of your people throughout your whole career. And that's something that I think the military in a male dominated way, sometimes they forget to take care of their people. And so that's one of the key aspects of women service that I think helps make the military better and stronger. I mean, we break barriers and we we are we're rock stars, but that femininity of being able to take care of people and make sure that the people are taken care of is something that I heard you say over and over and is something that's so important for the military. It's really key. And that is that that is how the military will change overall and become much stronger is um, by having that mentality. And women have uh, women bring that overall. It sounds sexist, but we do. Yeah, it sounds. Yeah, but it's just the truth. It's the way that we're wired and the way that. So, yeah. And it's something that I've heard over and over through all these podcasts. And I just I really liked how you mentioned it over and over throughout the interview just by telling your story. So thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Oh, thank you, Amanda. I, uh, thank you for the, uh, the opportunity to tell my story, to reach more women and encourage more women. Thank you for for, for spending your efforts on on highlighting women. It's important. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.